Hi, everyone, and welcome to Soylent Green. Joining us today is Dr. Diana Wall. She has held the positions of President of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, Society of Nematologists, and the Ecological Society of America. Diana was honored with the Ecological Society of America's 2017 Eminent Ecologist Award, the British Ecological Society's 2019 President's Medal and 2016 Honorary Member Award, the University College Dublin's 2015 Ulysses Medal, the SCAR President's Medal for Excellence in Antarctic Research, and the 2013 Soil Science of America Presidential Award. In 2004, Wall Valley, Antarctica was named in honor of her research. She has an honorary doctorate from Utrecht University in the Netherlands and is a fellow of the Ecological Society of America and the Society of Nematologists. Diana is also an elected member of the National Academy of Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Scientists and is the 2013 laureate of the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement. Diana is currently the science chair at the Global Soil Biodiversity Initiative. She is the inaugural director of the School of Global Environmental Sustainability at Colorado State, and she earned her BA in biology and PhD in plant pathology at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. Welcome, Diana Wall. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. First question, what are nematodes and what role do they play in the ecosystem? Well, I would say nematodes are the most important animal in the ecosystem. <laughs> really? But that's because I'm totally 100% sold on them as the <laughs> animal of the year. They are small, generally in soils, microscopic, and they play so many roles in every ecosystem process. So you want to talk about mineralization, you want to talk about decay of bodies, dead bodies in graveyards or whatever. These are the guys we're dealing with, but they also can be pests pathogens of plants, so they reduce crop productivity. But then there's this whole bunch of good ones that are just keeping the rates of carbon and nitrogen cycling going. They just feed on the microbes, go happily along their day, munch, 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 and then they just turn over the carbon and it becomes carbon that the plants can use. So I wanted to provide a little bit more of an explanation about how nematodes can affect carbon turnover. Some nematodes take in more nitrogen than necessary for their body structure. The excess nitrogen is excreted as ammonia. A proportion of the carbon consumed is used in respiration. The nitrogen associated with the respired carbon that is in excess of structural needs is also excreted. Excreted nitrogen then becomes available in the soil solution for uptake by plants and by microbes. And how many of those good ones like might be missing from some of our current ag systems? Here goes a scientist for you. Well, it depends on this and that. But <laughs> That's we hear every that episode. <laughs> but, you know, you could have a lot of soil biodiversity, a lot of species in an agricultural system. But what's important is which functional group are they in. There are bacterial feeding nematodes. There's ones that feed on only fungi. There's ones that feed on only plants and they're obligate parasites of plants. And so they have to have that plant species. They're predators. And those are the ones that usually get knocked out in agricultural systems. And so one of the fun things about research is trying to find out where are the predators really effective against plant parasitic nematodes, and can we translate that over to agriculture? Plant parasitic nematodes are responsible for substantial damages within the agricultural industry every year, which is a challenge that has thus far gone largely unimpeded. Chemical nematicides have been employed with varying degrees of success 
but their implementation can be cumbersome and could potentially be detrimental to beneficial nematodes that protect against other plant pathogens. Speaking of predator nematodes, I also heard about this nematode, Myrmaconema neotropicum, that ranges in habitat from Central America to the lowland Amazon jungle, which is transmitted through bird poo, our favorite subject, to unsuspecting ants whose gaster, or the large back end, subsequently swells larger than normal and looks like a ripe red berry, which can attract birds who eat them and pass them on to the next colony of ants when they excrete again. So if we had more predators, if we built our soils, so there was more diversity with each trophic group. It's kind of like each stage of the food web. If you could put all of those, and nematodes represent all of those, could you restabilize the food web and get rid of so many pathogens and pests? Yeah. So are all nematodes specialists on specific prey, or are there some that will feed on anything that's available? Yeah, there's some that we just call them omnivores. And I think part of that is because we know by their morphology that they could probably eat algal cells and also be a predator. They've got kind of a, a hypodermic needle in their mouth part. This hypodermic needle is called a stylet. The nematode uses this stylet to puncture plant cells, to withdraw food, and also to secrete protein and metabolites that aid the nematode in parasitizing the plant. Their mouths have either three or six lips, which often bear a series of teeth on the inner edges. Additionally, nematodes do not have stomachs, rather just a huge intestine that runs the length of their entire body. Wow. And it's hollow, and so they could go up to a filamentous algal and get something okay. for that, or maybe a fungi mycorrhiza hypha, like a, a straw, and punch that. Or they could just say, oh, to heck with it. I'm going to kill this tardigrade over here. <laughs> so they move over. No, <laughs> yeah. not a precious tardigrade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I am interested in hearing how you got interested in studying nematodes and your background and where you grew up and how you got into research. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> it was not like some people who want to be doctors and said, oh, I can't wait to study nematodes. I mean, I, I didn't know they existed, number one. And I think it's like a lot of people when they're having choices to make in careers, it's serendipity. And so I grew up in Kentucky. And I went to the University of Kentucky, and I was fortunate enough to take a microbiology class. And I thought, this is so cool. I mean, it was just, I had no idea you could look through a microscope and see all that stuff because I'd been studying plants up to then. And then I got a professor who was studying microbiology, except he studied diseases of plants. And he said, you need to take a parasitology class. Well, I took a parasitology class, and we spent the summer opening up dead birds and <laughs> pulling out their guts and looking for parasites. We also spent a lot of time with what I thought was horrible in the summer because it stunk to high heaven, was <laughs> looking at thoroughbred horses who had something the matter with them and looking at their feces under a microscope. And so you were in nice smelling contact with what you were looking at. And glamorous I, thought, <laughs> I am out of parasite world. You know? <laughs> and so this professor said, hey, I study ones that are pretty clean and pretty cool, and you can see them come over to my lab and look, and that's how I got into agriculture. So my background is plant pathology, and I started looking at nematodes, and I was just amazed that you can look through a microscope, and first they look like little cylinders with points on either end, and then pretty soon you start seeing the differences between the nematodes, and then you see, oh my God, I can see what they're eating and how their esophagus is pumping, and oh my God, they're having sex. I mean, <laughs> If we could go to a doctor and say, I hurt here, and he could just see through all your skin and everything, that's what nematodes are. You can look through them and say, oh, I see where this and that is. 
So I got pretty hooked pretty early on how cool it was to look and study the interactions of one plant parasite with another one. And that's kind of how I started. And then I kind of morphed into, after a few years of not having a job, I ended up at the University of California, Riverside. And they had a whole nematology department. In fact, they have two in that state at that time. And boy, it was just like a test a week by all these famous nematologists I'd read about saying, Hey, Diana, look at this soil sample we collected and tell me where you think it came from. Is it a desert? Is it a forest? And I'm going, yeah, I only studied plant parasitic nematodes, and now they want me to know the ecology. So it was, it was a lot of fun. You can tell where a nematode is from based on identification? Yeah, some of that, but also based on, are there more fungivores than there are plant parasites? Or are there more fungivores and bacterial feeders? Maybe that's from a forest because they'll be more involved in fungi and bacteria that decay that. So you deduce it down and you can, yeah, play you detect. It, it's not, I wouldn't call it scientific evidence, but it gives you a hint. Yeah, that's a good awesome. guess. That's really cool. <laughs> How important are nematodes to carbon cycling? Well, there's a paper that everybody ought to look at. I'll just tell you that they're very important and I can't quote it. But a young scientist named Vandenhogen wrote a paper with about 100 authors where we all sent in our data from soil samples we've taken around the world. And with that and the information we got from extracting the nematodes and seeing where we got them and soil moisture and all that, they were able to not only look at global geographic distribution of nematodes and the functional groups, where would you expect to see more nematodes in terms of abundance and what they did in the ecosystem, carbon cycling. And surprisingly, even though we think there's more species above ground or know there's more species above ground in terms of plants and animals in the tropics around the equator, that is not where we saw more nematodes. Where we saw more nematodes turned out to be in the tundra and in grasslands. I had to look at a couple of papers for this. We'll post links. And it seems soil nematode diversity and functionality can be negatively affected by disturbance like tilling and abiotic factors like water availability and high temperatures. But they are less affected by very cold temperatures and short growing seasons because nematodes can enter anhydrobiosis and wait it out, but have no such mechanism against very high temperatures. It also depends what kind of nematode you are. Apparently, there is a large distribution across what could well be undisturbed or lightly grazed grasslands, tundra and alpine tundra. At their highest abundance, the estimates from the paper to which Diana is referring showed a decent amount of variation from 4.8 to 7.8 million nematodes per square meter in these grassland, tundra, and alpine tundra positions. For those who don't use metric, get with it already. A square meter is almost 10.8 square feet, and I'll let you do the math on that. The authors do note that their findings likely will not apply at smaller scales, though, due to the high heterogeneity of soil microhabitats, even within a single site. I also found it interesting that predaceous nematodes had higher abundances in tropical and desert regions than most other feeding guilds. How much carbon was there? It's more than, I've got a, a great figure, it's too bad I can't show graphs, but a figure <laughs> oh, can, can share that later. <laughs> yeah. As it turns out, soil nematode biomass is equal to about 82% of all human biomass, which is about 0.3 gigatons. And the amount of CO2 respired by nematodes, about 9 gigatons a year, is equal to about 15% of carbon emissions from fossil fuels. For those who don't deal in massive quantities of gases like climate change researchers, a metric ton, spelled T-O-N-N-E, is 1,000 kilograms, or about 2,200 pounds, and a gigaton is 10 to the 12 kilograms. Vanden Hogan and fellow researchers estimate that globally, nematodes are responsible for about 0.14 gigaton of carbon turnover per month. 
Of that amount, they estimate that 0.11 gigatons is respired back into the atmosphere. They also estimate that nematodes account for 2.2% of carbon emissions from soils, or about 60 gigatons a year. That's a lot for such a tiny organism. And that's because... So nematodes, their biomass, the amount of carbon they have in their bodies, because they are everywhere except in Antarctica and some places in Antarctica, they contribute a lot just by their growth and feeding all the other microbes. I wanted to quickly throw in some fun facts about nematodes because they really are fascinating creatures. Four out of five animals on Earth are nematodes. One estimate was around 40 quintillion individuals or about 57 billion nematodes for every human. One estimate puts the number of nematode species at a million, though there are currently tens of thousands identified. The largest nematode on record, Placentanema gigantissima, infects the placenta of sperm whales and can grow to almost 30 feet in length. Canor habditis elegans, I probably butchered that, but usually known as C. elegans, was the first multicellular life form to have its genome completely sequenced. And while plant parasitic nematodes are well-known agricultural pests, most nematodes are actually beneficial to soils and nutrient availability. People and animals have specific nematodes that live within their gut, and certain nematodes live around or parasitize specific plants. So much so that there's a famous quote from the grandfather of American nematology, Nathan Cobb. In short, if all the matter in the universe except the nematodes were swept away, our world would still be dimly recognizable, and if, as disembodied spirits, we could then investigate it, we should find its mountains, hills, vales, rivers, lakes, and oceans represented by a film of nematodes. The locations of towns would be decipherable, since for every massing of human beings, there would be a corresponding massing of certain nematodes. Trees would still stand in ghostly rows representing our streets and highways. The location of the various plants and animals would still be decipherable. And, had we sufficient knowledge, in many cases, even their species could be determined by an examination of their erstwhile nematode parasites. So I'm glad oh. you brought up Antarctica because we wanted to kind of get into your journey there yeah. and how, how you ended up studying nematodes there. A frustration. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was frustration. So, you know, there was a paper I read when I was in graduate school and I just kept it around and it was written by a guy who's a limnologist and he just kept saying, why are there so many species and what do they do? Limnology is a term that comes from the ancient Greek limne, which means lake or pond. It currently encompasses the study of lakes, ponds, streams, rivers, and man-made bodies of water. And I was just moving from plant parasites into the rest of the community, and plant parasitic nematodes were just a part. But for all these other functional groups or trophic in the nematode food web, I would wonder why there's so many species of these things. I'm never going to be able to determine if one species has an effect when you're looking at this whole community, or even if you look at omnivores, is that the fault of the omnivore? You can't tell because there's just so many interactions going on. So I thought, I need to go to a place where there's fewer species. And because I was from the Southeast and really had had no ecology classes, I thought if we went to a desert, there would be less plant species, less roots, and I would then see fewer nematode species. Wrong. There are many species in nematode food webs in the desert. Hmm. So after working there for 15 years and studying, you know, how they survive and when they become active and it, could we predict how did they fit into models and that sort of thing, their life cycles, this friend of mine had been working in a cold desert and that was the transition. Hmm. And I started thinking, first I thought of the Sahara and then I thought of warmer deserts first, but <laughs> The guy's name was Bob Wharton, send me when he was on the ice, which is what we call Antarctica. He was on the ice. And he sent me 
a container of soil. And I extracted it when I was in Riverside. At that day, I didn't have to worry about permits. And extracted it, bingo. I was just stunned. And so my colleague that I worked with was then at San Diego State University. And I called him up and I said, we got nematodes. We're going to write a proposal to go to Antarctica. And so Ross and I wrote that. And we got funded the first year. And that was the start. And we thought, oh, this will be a one-year thing. And we tried to sample when we got down there because we didn't know what we were doing. You know, it's, it's kind of a question that it's so amazing to ask, but if you went into a place that looked like Mars, which is what we were in, where do you sample? There's no trees. There's not many streams. Everybody had sampled along glacial melt streams, but you land in a helicopter and then the helicopter goes away and you look around and say, <laughs> wow, which part of this Mars landscape am I going to go take a soil sample? Finally, ecology clicked in and we said, okay, we'll do transects of climbing up tops of mountains because we were in a valley and taking soil samples along the way. But we often did not have much time. It all depended on when the helicopter pilot came back to get us in those days. We didn't have GPS because at that time it was considered that it was secret and the USA wouldn't let us use GPS. Oh, wow. So it was lots of learning how to do field maps. And that's something I think, well, some of my graduate students tell me there ought to be a couple of workshops on writing when you go into the field about yeah. how to do Agreed. them. Because yeah. it's something that's not there anymore. We just, oh, I saw it and I'll just put in the coordinates and off you go. So anyway, that was how we got started. It was a joy to go down, but pure terror in terms of, <laughs> oh my God, what are we going to do? NSF said we can come. We better show that there's nematodes there. And what was really the driver, and I should have said this first, was there had been a science paper published a couple of years before we went down, or maybe four. It said that there is no life in these valleys except along the melt streams. Hmm. And that's where they had found invertebrates, and the only ones they had seen were nematodes. Since Ross and I had been working for 15 years near New Mexico in Hornada LTR, the Long-Term Ecological Research Site. The Hornada Basin Long-Term Ecological Research Site in Hornada, New Mexico, focuses research on the transition in ecosystem states, what is commonly referred to as succession in ecology. Succession can move in many directions, but is generally believed to result in a stable climax community determined by many abiotic and biotic factors. The Hornada LTER splits their research interests into six different themes, desertification, grass recovery, shrub state transitions, novel ecosystems, land integration, and global change. Each of these themes seeks to frame the Chihuahuan Desert and other arid and semi-arid lands as a backdrop for researchers in ecology. There are currently 122 ongoing and 452 completed research projects at Hornada. Some highlights include a study about dust, which we just talked about in our last episode, in which a 100-meter radius circle was scraped and the subsequent ecosystem state changes were observed. They found that downwind was converted to mesquite dune lands, while upwind ecosystems remained mixed shrubby grassland. Another study looked at the effect of increasing or decreasing precipitation in a black grandma mesquite-dominated ecosystem with and without added nitrogen fertilizer and found that added nitrogen after wet periods did not have an effect on above-ground net primary productivity, or ANPP. They also controlled for interannual precipitation variability and found that regardless of amount of precipitation, ANPP decreased under this regime, noting that grasses were affected more than shrubs. We said you know, we found them at 13 meters deep. So they just didn't you look at the right place. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't look at the right place. We know what we're doing, except that when we got there, we realized this is a big continent and, you know, we're just sampling a small part of it. Which valleys did they drop you off? And was it the McMurdo 
Yeah, dry valleys. It, it, yeah, the McMurdo Dry Valleys are the largest ice-free expanse. So as most of us can picture, Antarctica is covered by a one-mile-deep sheet of ice. But the McMurdo Dry Valley forms an unusual region resembling the surface of Mars. The McMurdo Dry Valleys can be found on the western coast of the McMurdo Sound and cover approximately 2,982 square miles of iceless terrain. In the valleys are lakes that perennially ice over, streams and exposed soil, as well as bedrock. The area suffers from extremely low temperatures, low precipitation, and high salt accumulation. Despite the extreme conditions, the valleys are home to a substantial amount of life, constantly being examined by scientists. Throughout the year, between 1,000 and 3,000 scientists live at the McMurdo Station, where they study the area. Numerous discoveries have been made in and around the valleys from the scientific hub. The station is actually a small city built on volcanic rock. One of the most notable and scientifically significant landmarks of the McMurdo Valley are the Blood Falls. The deep red-colored waterfall is five stories tall and flows from the Taylor Glacier. Its strange color comes from microbes that were trapped in the underwater lake, locked in ice, causing them to evolve separately from the rest of the world with no light, oxygen, and very little heat. The water in which they are trapped is high in iron and salt, and the iron is what gives the waterfall its blood-red color. Yeah. And they are the most extreme valleys. Those are the ones that NASA uses for Mars and research. I checked out an article about NASA's ice study. ICE is very short for characterizations of psychological risk overlap with physical health and associated performance in isolated, confined, and extreme environments. The study sought to characterize the mental state of future explorers to Mars missions by monitoring the physiological and psychological state and the sleep patterns of participants. They essentially wanted to assess the risks to and methods for maintaining astronauts' psychological health in isolated, confined, and extreme environments like a long space trip and subsequent stay on Mars. Like Mars, there's no evacuation in the Antarctic winter, just late April to mid-September, because of extreme temperatures and sea ice. I just think it's crazy that the sun just came up in Antarctica. Sometimes we shared labs with NASA guys who were saying, how do you find your nematodes? You know, And one thing that we we're interested in kind of had to do with soil carbon. There's not much organic matter there, because the valleys, when you go into them, and I mean it's like Mars, there's no flying insects. There's no flying nothing. The biggest invertebrate, the most abundant, are nematodes. Hmm. Oh, then wow. there's some mites. So I was kind of like in heaven. <laughs> it sure. was just great. <laughs> and you could identify them because there were only like three species. Now we know there's more than that. There's seven or eight. But because there were so few species, we could then set up experimental manipulations. Well, we got another grant. <laughs> we then set up um, chambers on the soil to warm the, warm the soils left them, would come back for the austral summer, the three months of summer, and be able to see over time that these warmed chambers had nematode numbers different than the ones that were just the controls. So that experiment ran for 28 years, and it's now turned out to be something that we can look at because we've had some wet years now. We're starting to see climate change down there. So we've had these, they're not rainstorms, but it was just like meltdown. Hmm. And we got a lot of water flow on a top of we had in our treatments to add carbon. So we have them warmed. Then we added carbon in the form of sugar because that's kind of a standard for international 
looking at microbes and the flush of microbes in soil. And we have other experiments where we added carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus. So all of these together have really come back to us looking at whether or not this particular species that dominates, which is Scott Nemo Lindsayi, named for Sir Robert Falcon Scott, who lost his life going to the pole. Oh, wow. So I embarrassingly didn't know much about Robert Falcon Scott, so I did a little background research. Robert Falcon Scott spent most of his life in the Navy, joining at only 13 years old. When Robert became an adult, he was given command to lead an expedition for the Royal Geographical Society to explore the polar regions. Him and his crew set sail for the Antarctic on August 6th in 1901 aboard the Discovery Ship. There was very little experience of the polar environment amongst his crew. However, they did reach further south and were closest to the South Pole than anyone had ever been before. They made it safely back to the UK and was considered a hero. Sir Robert Falcon Scott then took command of the Terra Nova expedition in 1910. Scott was set on being the first to reach the South Pole, but once in Australia, he received a telegram from Roald Amundsen and his Norwegian expedition informing him that they were also headed for the pole. The race was on. Sir Robert Falcon Scott and four of his party reached the pole on January 17, 1912, only to find out that Amundsen's Norwegian party had narrowly beaten them to it. By the end of March 1912, all five men perished at various points on the return journey from the pole. One fellow, Oates, had suffered from very bad frostbite. To avoid holding his companions back, he deliberately walked out of their tent and into the vast wilderness where he perished. Scott and two of his party perished in their tent on March 29, 1912, only 20 kilometers from a supply camp. Their return journey was badly hampered by fierce weather, hunger, and exhaustion. Later that year, a search party found their remains and diaries. The men were buried on that spot with a Karen to mark their last resting place. Scott became an icon, and the surviving members of the expedition were rewarded with polar medals. And then somebody named him, I think they were from UC Davis, named the nematode Scott Nemo Lindsay And Lindsay was for his technician. So, <laughs> That's so it's, nice. a, it's a great nematode to look at. I used to say it looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but i got to come up with a better model. <laughs> I mean, it's really tough. In his to prime. Yeah, <laughs> in his prime. That's more what I want. Or Rambo or something like that in his prime. It endures. It is the only species in some of the soils with high saline contents. And it does not like water. So if you get to a wet habitat, it is not in the moist soils. There are other species that are in the moist soils. So it was really quite striking to be able to start to see interactions, responses to climate change and our treatments to see what is the biogeographical distribution of a species. It's cool. That's interesting because I was going to ask what effect does moisture and temperature and elevation have on nematodes mm -hmm. and what can you project into the future with climate change? Mm -hmm. What will be happening to our nematode populations? I mean, now we have branched out. The McMurdo Dry Valley LTR is composed of glaciologists and geochemists and stream and lake people. And I think there are a number of things that we can say in what I'm going to say is based on both laboratory experiments where in our lab we have what I call a global change kind of incubator and we can run nematode species at different temperatures. You know, we can look at their turnover. Do they eat faster or whatever? So what I would say based on field experiments is that what we have been seeing with elevation 
also has to do with water and temperature. And it is enough to say that we are seeing a very fast response to climate change there. And Scott Nemo will have to live in higher, drier spots Mm. than where it's moist. Sure. And that there may be a change in the range of all the species there. So it's much like thinking about what plant ranges are. These are going to respond very similarly, and we just don't know how that's going to be. We've got some projections, and we've also got some projections based on the long-term experiment of how resilient they're going to be. Are we going to lose all of Scott Nimmer in a particular place? But then we have to also think about the fact that there's really no organic matter on the surface, so these winds come up and they blow. We've already done the tests to see that nematodes can go into anhydrobiosis, this survival state, and blow miles down the valley, and oh, we can pick them up. Yeah. So nematodes can blow in the wind? As Diana mentioned, anhydrobiosis is a widespread strategy allowing them to survive unfavorable conditions for months and even years. In a certain study, six taxa were collected, nematodes, rotifers, columbulins, tardigrades, mites, and thrips. Among those, nematodes had the highest dispersal rates, up to over 3,000 individuals per square meter in four weeks. 27 species were identified, and they represented over 44% of all of the aeroplankton. These results indicate that the wind dispersal over long distances is possible. The notable input by wind dispersal can contribute to biodiversity and ecosystem functions, something you don't really think about. When nematodes enter anhydrobiosis, their cells basically dry up, withstanding extreme desiccation. While the exact mechanism is not known, what we do know is that they usually coil up, almost like a little Cheerio or donut, and wait for moisture to return to their environment, at which time they can reanimate and pick up where they left off. They have been recorded, quote-unquote, returning to life after about 40 years. However, Russian scientists have reportedly found 40,000-year-old nematodes in the Russian tundra and brought them back to life. This claim needs to be substantiated by other scientists, though, as some think the sample could have been contaminated with modern organisms. Another fun little fact is that nematodes can also hitchhike on columbula and beetles to move within the soil and above ground, respectively. See the link to the Chaos of Delight page on nematodes for amazing up-close pictures of this. We'll also post some on Instagram. So, you know, that's a way for them to survive. And we also saw them my last season down where we camped closer to the pole we actually saw those same nematode species. We now know that we're going to have a lecture coming up, a former student that was in our lab, a former undergraduate in our lab, and she went and worked with one of my colleagues and then got to go to the field, go to the ice last year as part of her master's thesis, and she has shown that there's different species, and she's going to talk about of Scott Nema. So that's going to be real interesting, yeah. Huh, that is really interesting. I wanted to go back for a second. I yeah. thought I heard that you had a soil microarthropod named after you. I know, isn't that cool? <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention a whole valley name. in Antarctica. Yeah, no, I mean, I just couldn't believe that. That was so cool. That was a colleague of mine who's a mite specialist, and she just called me up one day and said, Diana, we named a mite after you. And what is the official scientific name of this I mite? don't know. <laughs> we'll look Something Diana-y. We found the name of that mite with the help of our RBI Undulorabatis dianae, although I like the name proposed by you feisty agency 9994. Diana might. Not only does Diana Wall have a mite named after her, but interestingly enough, so does Jennifer Lopez. NOAA-funded scientists found a water mite off the shores of Puerto Rico. 
And the collaborators say that the mite was given its new title as a small token of gratitude for the singer's inspirational music. J-Lo is not the first singer honored in such a way. Bob Marley, Freddie Mercury, Bono, and Mick Jagger all have organisms named after them. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Two eyes. That's cute. That's <laughs> pretty amazing. Yeah, I thought that was just, that was so unexpected. That's really cool. And you were also inducted into the Colorado Women's yeah, Hall, Hall of Fame, fame. Yeah. correct? Well, congratulations. What is your opinion about being a woman in STEM and mm-hmm. how has it changed along your career? Oh, tremendously. <laughs> tremendously, I thank bet. God. <laughs> yeah. Number one, I think everybody's saying the same thing I am saying is that science is one of the best careers you could ever have in your life. It's just who would have thought studying nematodes would take me to the end of the earth? Mm. Who would have thought that it could be such fun to think of experiments, you get some of them wrong, and somebody says, ha-ha, we proved you wrong, and you say, yay, let's go this way. You know? Right, that's <laughs> And it point. just kind of leads you into this crazy career that is, I think, fun, gets you a lot of colleagues, you learn a lot, and it's the idea of learning that is really great. And before, it would shut out a whole lot of people, and you just didn't have the opportunities to do what you want to do. I mean, I can tell a lot of horror stories along my career, and I think most women at my stage could give you a long career. But for Antarctica in particular, they just came out with the NSF sexual harassment last Friday. It was written up in Science Magazine. And So from an NPR article following a National Science Foundation survey in June, which included over 800 employees surveyed, one woman was quoted to say, on her very first day in Antarctica, one woman was warned to avoid a certain building at the National Science Foundation's McMurdo Station unless she wanted to be raped. That's a very serious statement. Another woman was so freaked out by the pervasive sexual harassment that she began carrying around a hammer. In the report survey, 72% of female respondents agreed that sexual harassment was a problem, and just under half agreed that sexual assault was a problem. Among male employees responding to the survey, about half and a third respectively agreed that harassment and assault are an issue. Since then, the NSF has made improvements to their sexual harassment policies and protocols. The assessment notes that leadership is committed to addressing sexual harassment with additional trainings, better reporting, and better support for victims. However, trust and leadership response has been low. This is something that will take a community to combat. Please, if anyone has ever made you feel insecure, disrespected, or unheard in the workplace, please tell someone you trust and contact the proper resources. You should not feel as if you have to dim yourself for others. One of our colleagues who works at Science wrote and said, could I suggest some names? And it was just sending her names of women who might respond to what this report was saying about how it's going to change in Antarctica for the better. Just such a joy because I could list so many women now, early career scientists, who are making their careers or even just going to the field and saying, hey, I've been there, and that isn't the place I want to work. Lots still has to be done, but there's so many women who can make positive comments. This is what I would say. And I think some people might not realize, especially in Antarctica, and you're doing this research in such a tough terrain, but then also have to deal with these other social issues. Is It's not easy. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, when we go, we go for months, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever. I've got two pairs of blue jeans I wear the whole time. That's <laughs> going and coming pretty much or in town. The rest of the time you're in the field and in the old days, I might be the only woman. And so 
what I did was take lots of women and men in my, from my lab, you know, when I could. And I happened to work with in this group of 30 for the past years, all of us. And there were two women mostly and about 10 men from different campuses across the United States. Like I say, we were very interdisciplinary. And there was great respect for women. I mean, maybe we'll get called out because of one of our PIs, our principal investigators were doing something. But after 28 years, I don't know of any in particular, because I think our group was aware that a colleague might have to go home and take care of their kids, whether they were men or women. Even the field. And even the field thing, or your mother might die, or something might happen. And so we were much more respectful of people's science. I mean, I'm hoping I'm not sugarcoating this, but that's the way some of the responses have come back to this report that the National Science Foundation just requested and got the how bad is it kind of report. Sure. I think it's much better. I think there's a lot more to do. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. I just read that paper you sent me and we'd both watched, I can't remember the name of the documentary, but it was- Picture a a scientist? I think that's that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Picture a Scientist is a 2020 documentary highlighting gender equality in science. The movie tells the stories of several prominent female researchers and brings to light the barriers they encountered, including cases of discrimination and harassment. The movie features MIT's professor of biology, Nancy Hopkins, the chemist, Rachel Burks, and the geoscientist, Jane Willenbring, among other scientists. The film took part in the Tribeca Film Festival in April 2020, and it is definitely worth the watch. Do you happen to be there at that screening in the bio building? No, like I a saw year or so it ago? way before that. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I saw it when it came out because the colleague that was mentioned was mm-hmm. geologist on you. Okay, yeah. yeah. I wondered because once you said in the article, I was like, I wonder if she's seen that documentary. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think everybody ought to watch that documentary. Yeah, it was eye-opening. What really got me about that was not only it's women of any age, it's any career stage, it's any discipline, mm-hmm. and it still occurs. Yeah. And I think that's what we really have to work on is both what are our powers to be normal and what are others' powers to make sure we don't have any mess ups. And also to give women a platform to share their experiences, because I think that's really what has changed because it's always been going on. But now more women are being given the chance Mm -hmm. to share about what they've been through. Yeah. And I think there's an element of having to always be ready. So going to the galley in McMurdo, they kept just kind of like a chart and it would say how many men and how many women on station. And when I was in town, every time I'd go down, we called it Highway 1. It's a long highway. You'd go down Highway 1 and I'd look to see what was the the distribution, the the ratio of men to women. And I can see the difference to me in times as I've been down in the field is not having to prepare to be prepared to take on anything at any time of the day, but to be relaxed like anybody else would be when they're there to do research and focus. Yeah. Yeah. That should be a given right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we mentioned yet how long you actually were in Antarctica. Yeah, I really ought to go in and count it. But I think it's 28 years plus, or maybe it's 28 years. Wow. 28 seasons, yeah, straight. What do scientists do on their off time in Antarctica? Sleep. (laughs) Sleep is the number one thing we do. We laugh a lot. I've got a colleague that, well, several that run the marathon on the ice runway. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. Okay, so the Antarctica Marathon may have been the first for-profit sporting event held in Antarctica on January 28th, 1995. 
The event is now held every year in late February or early March. The 42-kilometer or 26-mile race is held on King George Island, one of the largest Antarctic islands off the Antarctic Peninsula. There is also a half marathon held at the same time. McMurdo has its own marathon. The annual marathon is free and open to employees and grantees of the United States Antarctic Program, the United States Air Force personnel, and anyone on duty at the McMurdo Station, including Kiwis from New Zealand's nearby research station, Scott Base. Many participants run the full marathon. However, a half marathon option is available. Some participants elect to ski the course. In January 2015, McMurdo Station hosted possibly the first known ultramarathon over 48 kilometers on the continent. I guess that's what scientists do with their spare time. I never tried that. Always. <laughs> you know, if how, you how have free time, I mean, well, it's 26 miles. Oh, they okay. run out. I mean, like for Christmas, we get off Christmas Day, maybe Christmas Eve, and we eat a lot because we've got fresh food flown in. Oh, Usually wow. we get freshies. And then people, if you're camp, you sleep a lot and you talk and party and stay yeah. up all night. And then you may go to work the next day or it may be, if you're lucky, it's Sunday and you get one no-fly day a week. Interesting. So it just depends on where you are and what you've got going. Huh. So I don't know much about Antarctica at all, but you keep mentioning this town. Well, so Antarctica is owned by nations and it's preserved for science mm -hmm. at the moment. It is probably because everybody thought it was just ice and what's it worth except for fishing. So now they're overfishing down there. It's the last pristine ocean. Each country that wants to claim a hunk of it so that when it melts, they've got the resources. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> they're way all to planning think of on it. melting. <laughs> they have, well, I'll just tell you, the U.S. does not have a claim, but we are on New Zealand's territory. So the biggest base that the U.S. has, the U.S. has three. So in many ways, we're a geopolitical power, but we also do all the search and rescues and take dead people out and all this sort of stuff and bring the scientists in and out. It's the biggest base. We're on the edge of a volcano where we're there, an active volcano. And so it's you fly in, that's where you get into town, you get all your gear and people go into the deep field. So they are the ones who go in and they may be there for six to eight weeks and then there are other people who stay in McMurdo, and they're the mountaineers who prepare and get ready to go with us when we go out on, say, a two-week thing. And then there are all the cooks and the gas people, the oil field guys, all that sort of stuff that offload and unload the ship when it comes once a year. The second base is South Pole Station. The differences are the scientists in McMurdo may go local to do their research. They may be on the coast looking at whales and seals. There's a guy in biology who is really well-known, Shane Canados who's really well known for looking at deep diving animals and how they are able to do that and we can't. But anyway, so that's more coastal. It's more launch of deep feel, ice core people. South Pole is much more astrophysics. And then we've got Palmer Station, which is the one that's closest to South America. And that's kind of the peninsula that sticks out and that's much more marine. And those three bases are all kind of run by the National Science Foundation and the Department of State. Near us is Italian base, German, China, Korea, and that's a lot of bases very close by. But we also, the U.S. brings in and out people. And the travel is, I should say, how we get there. We fly to Christchurch, New Zealand, and then we get on a C-130 or military aircraft that flies us eight hours into wow. six to eight hours. And the flight is in your gear, 
you're in the slide, you don't have windows, you don't have a way out if it crash, and you get out about four and a half hours if you're on the C-130, and they give you a signal. You can't hear anything, so they give you a signal that you're either going forward to the ice or you're boomeranging and going back to New Zealand because you can't get on. The winds are too bad or something. And on these planes, you're with scientists from different countries as well? Yeah, well, usually, yeah, generally the people that have bases near us. The Koreans may bring their own. I'm not sure about that, but definitely the Italians and the New Zealanders go down with us, and they also fly planes there. Hmm. We'll be with people in the armed forces for the U.S. and New Zealand. We'll be with graduate students. We'll be with staff, people who are just going down there to make money. They'll stay three months and save their money because you can't spend it on anything there. Yeah. And you work 12-hour days and, you know, six days a week, and you work all season long, you get a bonus, and then you can come back and that's your fund. Wow. Do you have access to internet or is everything It's limited. It's so you limited. take all your field notes and then you bring it back to... In our lab, we try to upload all data while we're there to get the data checked, get it on. Everybody gets some way to carry it all back in case something happens. But right now, the satellites just don't go that far to give us enough window that we can all download a ton of data. Right. Despite its central role in Antarctic research, McMurdo is lacking something most scientists working in 21st century laboratories take for granted, high-speed internet. McMurdo sits on the only continent that doesn't have high-speed fiber optic cable connection to the rest of the world, but that soon could be changing. Earlier this year, the NSF began seriously exploring the possibility of building a fiber optic cable that would travel along the seafloor from Antarctica to neighboring New Zealand or Australia. The idea was first raised a little over a decade ago, but lost traction as other projects took priority. In this latest effort to modernize Antarctica, scientists say it would transform both research and daily life on the frozen continent. Today, researchers working in Antarctica rely on low-bandwidth satellites to communicate with the outside world. Compared with a typical rural household, the amount of bandwidth available per person at McMurdo is limited. Researchers often have to store their data on hard drives to physically bring back home rather than exporting it to their colleagues to analyze in real time. This creates a bottleneck that slows scientific research. The next step in making Antarctica's high-speed internet upgrade a reality is a formal desktop and engineering design study that NSF will be conducting with assistance from the Department of Defense. Completing that study, which will include pricing out the cable and related infrastructure, studying the route, and developing a schedule for getting everything installed is a key milestone. After that, NSF will decide whether to proceed with the project. So we're restricted. You have to request how much time you might need for the lab for, say, interviews, or how much time you may talk to somebody about data or something like that. But they're working on making that much more accessible. More accessible. Interesting. Yeah. What is the ghost soil creature that has survived 30 ice ages? <laughs> well, I don't think that one in particular has, but looking back at the history. So we have a colleague, we work with lots of different colleagues, and that's a New Zealand colleague that I work with. And his graduate student is the lead on that. She's now in Germany working on invertebrates and with a postdoc there. And yeah, it was just the white animal. I mean, you could turn over a rock and you can see Columbula, the little they call them springtails because yeah. they jump. So here's a little more information about the ghost creature. A YouTube video produced by BYU University Communications highlights a primitive insect-like creature that has survived 30 ice ages and was recently rediscovered in Antarctica 
by a team of scientists who have been searching for it for decades. This is what we affectionately refer to as the ghost columbula, says BYU biology professor Byron Adams, who conducts regular research in Antarctica. We call it the ghost columbula because it's white like a ghost. But because we had not found it after looking for years and years and years, we started to wonder if it was real, if it really existed. In a paper published August 24th in 2020, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Adams, Diana Wall, and colleagues from eight different research institutions produced genetic data from the microscopic critter that corroborates climate reconstructions and estimates of past warm periods of reduced ice and the absent ice shelf in the Ross Sea region of Antarctica. And it was only on this one point on the top of this mountain, and we had Ian Hogg is the guy's name, and Ian had had past evidence that somebody else who had been exploring that area had seen these white columbulas. So we didn't know if they were distributed anywhere else or not, but we were able to look at a number of mountaintops, and we only found this population there. And because we have a geoscientist with us from Ohio State and all this collection of mines, we were able to look back and kind of date you know, when this particular formation was there and tie it into previous data and show how long it had probably been isolated and hiding out and living. That's amazing. Yeah, it was was quite amazing. And they're really cute. (laughs) (laughs) Were there any other invertebrate? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) We got asked about tardigrades as well because we love them because they're really cute. They're there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But they're also tough, like nematodes. So what is their role in nutrient and carbon cycling and maybe their interactions with nematodes? Yeah. So around here, we could say we would probably find some tardigrades that feed on nematodes, for example. That's well known. They're usually in a wetter habitat. So you usually find them not like we would find Scott Nemo, which is in just bare, sandy soil that's dry. These are usually found in like edges of streams or on lichens or mosses or something like that. And they take that moisture. And when they go into their survival state, they just kind of reduce their body shape from that little bear you see, lose their moisture, change their biochemical pathway, and then just fold over like they were doing a bend (laughs) and touching their toes. And they just fold like that. And then they can almost be spore-like and just fly around. Wow. So they're very much like nematodes. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they they can survive nematodes and tardigrades, and tardigrades in particular can survive all sorts of things like no air. We've done experiments in the lab where we just put them under vacuum, and particularly with nematodes, we've done that kind of thing and just dried them up, and then you can put them in the freezer and take them back out, and you add water, and a good percentage of them will come back. So nematodes are kind of they're very different from them, obviously. <laughs> so when nematodes lose their water and the environmental conditions get bad, the ones in the soil will start to just fold up like a donut. They lose all their moisture. I think they're both lose about 99% of their moisture. So they're protecting their membranes and they change their biochemical pathways so that they're producing something like triolose or sugar or some kind of an alcohol that protects their membranes. So tardigrades will fold down to their toes kind of thing. And nematodes will coil into a little spiral and look like a poker chip and Hmm. just Extreme yoga. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Don't we wish we could do it? And then what's so cool about them is you can bring them back and give them the right conditions and bingo, they start 
resynthesizing their pathway and start becoming active again. That's so cool. Yeah. Rotifers are just amazing animals. Yeah. I just got to see one of those today. (laughs) (laughs) This is kind of going off track a little bit, but I was curious if you weren't in the position you were in now, in the career now, Mm -hmm. what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, God, I don't know where I'd have so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps somebody could sell me on something else, but I... You're pretty invested in the nematode. Yeah, Yeah, I'm just invested in soil as a habitat. It's just, we go to Mars and they're interested in where soil carbon is. And here we've got Antarctica. And the difference is in the dry valleys, you don't find nematodes in every soil sample. If we went out here or went up in the mountains, I bet you could take a soil sample anywhere and we would find nematodes in it. Mm. Lots of them in different species. It's very curious as to why do we have some spots that the soils can't support them. And we have other spots where they're just as abundant as we see them in the Hornada Desert, where we've got plant debris, you know, and organic matter. What else would I be doing? I don't know. I, one time I thought I was going to quit and open a dress shop, and I'm really glad I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> in another life. I would have probably lost my money. It wouldn't have been as fun, I don't As think. fun, yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like you said earlier, it's sort of a serendipitous thing. Like, you kind of fell into this work. Yeah. I feel like the same way with where I'm at right now. Yeah. You know, it wasn't planned. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I'm going to go work in a nematode <laughs> lab. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. I think we don't give credit enough for people who say, okay, I'm willing to gamble. And then you find out whether or not after a year you say, I don't want to do that one, you know, but I found out something I do want to do. Yeah. And that's just how it happens. Yeah. It's not as directed for me as my cousins, for example, who said, I want to be a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, an orthopedic doctor. <laughs> and that's the cool thing about science, too, because you just can follow your curiosities and see where it takes you. Yeah. And that's my favorite thing about it. Absolutely. You know, we just had Gene Kelly on here. Oh, yeah. And I know you've collaborated with him as well. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, what other ways do you get to dip your hands in other pies in the scientific world? I think the other ways have become more obvious since we know more about climate change. And for a while, we looked at land use change and disturbance and how would that affect ecosystem functioning and how does biodiversity tie to that and what happens when you lose some of these species or functional groups. And I think it's becoming more urgent. And so there are different colleagues and groups that I have now, but If I look back at my career, you know, it was first looking at what was the tie of plant parasites to plant productivity or yield. And it just changed into in natural systems, what do plant pathogens, nematodes do to natural plants in the ecosystem. So it hasn't been that much change, except I'm now looking at the whole, it's like saying I'm going to look at all vertebrates, only I'm doing a whole phylum and looking at community function and food webs there. And I think there's so much... I learn from other people, and I think the field has opened up tremendously because there's all the genome and the sequencing studies that are going on, and they're tying intricate parts of soil to, you know, what a soil habitat is for these various species. It's not just the plant that drives what species you have below ground, but it's also what is that soil habitat composed of. Yeah. And so I think putting those together, the holistic, not just nematodes, but how are the interactions with nematodes and mites and the fungivorous nematodes and the fungivorous mites, does one take over when the other one is out of sync with water? I mean, if we get a drought, are nematodes going to be less of a player than, say, a mite that can go through air spaces yeah. and feed and regulate carbon turnover? There's just so many different issues. And now one is becoming, how do we conserve soils? I mean, if you'd asked me 15 years ago if we would have thought about conserving and soil biodiversity, I would have thought, say what? There's there's just (laughs) so much of it. (laughs) And we know so little. Most of what we know about soil biodiversity is in the top 30 centimeters. Mm -hmm. 
And we haven't even reached that in soil carbon below ground. So I, I just think that oh, I'm really encouraged by, like we have a Global Soil Biodiversity Initiative. I was going to ask about that. <laughs> yeah. And that came about just because a number of scientists were visiting here. And we said, we know a lot that we need to let other people know that it's not just a black box on soil invertebrates and soil microbes. We've really learned a lot in the last 20 years, and especially in the last 10. And we need to get that message out so that people will quit ignoring them as right. part of the ecosystem. Because otherwise, we're just thinking about it as concrete. Right. And we think about plants <laughs> above ground and animals above ground, and we don't think about the connections, how endangered species above ground feed on some of the animals below ground. But I saw a plant growing out of the concrete <laughs> up there. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> so anyway, the Global Soil Biodiversity Initiative, we had the first meeting and I thought, ah, oh, it'll be a hundred people. I know, you know, that's about it. We had a thousand <laughs> nice, or 700, I think. The next time we had it in China, it was a thousand. And at least in Dijon, France, the first place we had it, 60% of them were under the age of 30. So the scientists are young and are just saying, this is the feel. That's really interesting, <laughs> yeah. actually. And I think in Dublin next year, we will have on a thousand. We think it'll be a thousand in March. So that's what we're planning right now. I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, learn nematodes. <laughs> Put in an abstract by the 26th. We might be able to work something up. <laughs> I'm on it. <laughs> From someone with so many accolades, what advice would you give to aspiring soil biologists and researchers? Be persistent. Be respectful of when you collaborate. You know, I've made a lot of mistakes, and I'm sure other people have too when they've started to collaborate. But collaborate and have fun. I mean, know your science. Yeah. But have fun. Yeah. If it's not fun and you get into this thing about, I have more publications than you do, or <laughs> right. my soil sample's better than your soil sample, or something like that. Is that really that. success? <laughs> that is not success. Discovery's fun. Yeah, I agree. What is your favorite part of your job, and what is your least favorite part of your job? I think my favorite part of the job is when I get to read papers. Say somebody's done some work and they send it to me and I'm reviewing it for them. And then I get all of a sudden like, oh, this is really great. And then I start reading more reprints than I should be reading or more publications <laughs> to inspired. find out. Yeah, I get inspired and read all that. It. And I really like that. And I think I get inspired by the people that work with me. That's the best part. There are a lot of people who are crazy about doing something on sustainability, which I think soil is a huge, unforgotten part. So I'm kind of happy that I've got all these sustainability gurus with me. I think the least favorite is how fast the day goes. I mean, it just infuriates me. that <laughs> Not enough <laughs> time. There's not enough time. And there's all these <laughs> things we could do. And just when I'm misused my time, I think, like, really? You stopped and watched that dumb TV show? <laughs> Everyone suffers with that. So, I mean, you know, life is good. We don't have COVID right now. I, right. Think, I think I really don't have much to complain about. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming and talking with thank us. You. Thank you, Diana. And yeah, thank you for paving the way for people like us to continue. Oh, keep it up. Continue <laughs> studying keep and learning <laughs> and trying to make the world a better place. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>